Ever since the first tick-tock of time You brought order to a world undefined Welcome to the Genesis West Podcast. Welcome to the Genesis West Podcast. Welcome to the Genesis West Podcast. Our Our teaching team team is made up of men and women who love asking probing questions of each week's scripture portion. To which our community responds with curiosity, courage, and a desire to expand in faith, hope, and love. We follow the Revised Common Lectionary, and we follow the church calendar, because because they they anchor us in something something which can can hold us, no matter what life throws our way. We exist to join God's work of cultivating new beginnings in all of us everywhere cultivating new beginnings in all of us everywhere we exist to join god's work of cultivating new beginnings in all of us everywhere we hope you enjoy this week's teaching we hope you enjoy this week's teaching we hope you enjoy this week's teaching morning everyone um our second reading this morning is from matthew 17 verses 1 to 9 six days later jesus took with him peter and james and his brother john and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became bright as light. Suddenly there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. Then Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here if you wish. I will set up three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, suddenly a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son, the beloved. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell to the ground and were overcome by fear. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Get up and do not be afraid. And when they raised their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus ordered them, tell no one about the vision until after the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. The word of the Lord. All right. Transfiguration Sunday. Uh, so we've been, we're, this is technically the last Sunday of Epiphany. We've been talking about this for several weeks now. And uh, as we've been saying, Epiphany is that time of the year where we, we look at who Jesus was and what his life was all about. His earthly ministry, we focus on that. We know that the crucifixion and the resurrection are coming, but we want to spend some time with Jesus in those three years in that earthly ministry. And so we started with the arrival of the Magi and telling that story, and we told the story of Jesus' baptism. And now we, we're pivoting into Lent, but we finish with this story of the transfiguration. As Katie said, Ash Wednesday is coming up. This Wednesday. And of course, Lent, we talk about all the time, is this season of wilderness, is this season of scarcity. It's a season where we become more introspective, perhaps, or a season where we start seeking what comes next in our lives and what comes next in the kingdom of God. And that word seeking is something you're going to hear a lot over the course of Lent. That's very much going to be our theme this year throughout Lent. So we're going from a time where we spend a lot of time with Jesus to a time where we're seeking his second coming. We go from a a period where we're doing the joyful work of knowing Jesus to the more difficult work of trying to find that second coming, trying to find him again, trying to find the essence of his teaching. We're going from a season of abundance to a season of scarcity. And all of that movement pivots around this scene, pivots around the transfiguration itself. 
So the transfiguration story is described in all three synoptic gospels, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, there are varying theories as to why John decided not to put it in his gospel. Um, all kinds of very nerdy and academic-y stuff that I could go on for if I had 40 minutes, but I don't. So if anybody would be interested in that, please come find me later. Uh, I'll buy you a donut. It'll be great. I'll explain the whole thing. But we're going to take a look at Matthew's description of the transfiguration. And there's a lot of different ways we could look at that. I actually preached off of this passage three years ago on Transfiguration Sunday. And so when, I, when it came up and I was on the schedule for this week, I thought, oh, well, this is cool. I can just go back to my old notes and see what's there and maybe, you know, polish up a few things and this is going to be great. And I thought, I said, well, no, let me just, you know, a lot of things have changed in three years. A lot of things in culture, a lot of things in all of our lives, a lot of things in my life have changed in three years. So let me take a fresh swing at it and see what happens and see what I can find. And then if I need to go back and supplement with some notes from before, I can do that. Well, not only did I find stuff to talk about that had nothing to do with what I talked about three years ago, but I found so much that, again, if I had 45 minutes, we could really delve into a lot of different things. There's a ton here to look at. Just start with the first few words there, after six days, right? That's clearly a link to the Exodus. That's clearly a link to Moses on a mountain, on a mountain. Clouds, loud voices, all of these things are Moses' experience speaking to God and the, spirit, the experience of the apostles in this transfiguration. There's clearly a link there. and There's all kinds of fascinating ways we could explore that. We could talk about Jesus' transfigured body as being a precursor, a foreshadowing the transfigured body being a foreshadowing of his resurrected body. What does that mean? Why don't we have the language to describe what Jesus actually was like in that situation? Because Jesus' resurrected body is supposed to be representative of our resurrected bodies. It would be kind of nice to know what that's about, right? All kinds of stuff we could dig into there. We could you know, go super nerdy and talk about Matthew's church and the way that Matthew constructed the gospel in order to try and renew and revive the faith of the people he was, he was leading, the church that he had planted and the, the people he was trying to lead, and how that encouragement and how that revival could be found in our lives today. But I want to, what I want to do today is I want to talk about Peter. I want to talk about Peter because, A, he's one of my favorite people in Scripture, because there's something recognizably human in Peter that I don't think we see in a lot of other biblical people. I want to say characters, but that makes it sound like they're invented, right? But you know what I mean. If you think about it, when we go through the list of the apostles, most of the apostles we don't really know a whole lot about. There isn't a whole lot said about them as individuals in Scripture. But there's a few that are discussed quite deeply, and Peter's one of those. And I think that makes it easier for us to recognize ourselves in Peter, in a character that's in Scripture, and it makes it easier for us to connect with the story that he's in like the story, like the transfiguration. Peter's, you know, Peter's earnest, right? Peter's decisive. Peter's flawed and has shortcomings. And all of that makes it more available, I think, to us to connect with. When I say he's earnest, what I'm talking about is Peter really loves Jesus. I mean, he really loves Jesus, right? In the previous chapter to the one passage that we're looking at today, we're looking at chapter 17. In chapter 16, Peter's the first apostle to say out loud that he believes that Jesus is the Messiah. I think they all believed it to some level or another over a period of time, but he's the first one to actually say it out loud. And that's a risk in the time and the place that Peter was, was saying that. 
but he loved Jesus and he had to say that at some point, right? He's the one that wants to protect Jesus all the time. He wants to protect Jesus from the crowd. He wants to protect Jesus from the religious leaders. He even wants to protect Jesus from himself. We'll talk about that here in a second. But he's earnest. He deeply loves Jesus. Peter's also decisive, right? He's a man of action. Oftentimes it's clueless action, but it's action, right? You think about it, when Peter, you know, the apostles are on the boat and here comes Jesus walking on the water, what's Peter's reaction? Gets out of the boat and tries to walk to Jesus, right? And makes it a few steps before he realizes what's going on and boom, then he starts to sink. But he just, he's going to act, right? He's the one, when they're in the garden and the soldiers come to arrest Jesus, he's the one that breaks out the sword and tries to interfere. Here, in this passage, you have Peter wanting to build three tents to honor Jesus and Moses and Elijah. That word tent there, if you look at various translations, it's one of those words that gets translated differently, seems like in every translation. You'll see it in some spots, it'll, it'll say shelter, in another translation it'll say memorial, in another translation it'll say tabernacle. Tabernacle probably is the most correct translation of that word, but we don't often use the word tabernacle in English, so a lot of English translations stay away from it. But the tabernacle, remember, was just the tent that the Israelites had taken with them as they were traveling through the desert during the Exodus. That's where the ark stayed. That was where God's presence was felt in the tabernacle, in that tent. So when, when Peter sees this miraculous transfiguration of Jesus, and there's Moses, and there's Elijah, and he's going to do something. He's going to, let's build three tents. Never mind the fact they're on a mountain, and he doesn't have any materials with him, and he's a fisherman, not a carpenter. I don't even know if he knows how to build these things. But he doesn't think of it. He's just got to act because he's decisive. He's a man of action. Basically, Peter will run through a wall for Jesus and leave a Peter-sized hole coming out the other side. That's just his personality. And I can connect with that personally in a, little, in, in a certain way. I'm not, not that I'm saying I'm a man of action by any stretch of the imagination. But in my day job as a radio producer, right, one of the things you learn working in radio is that time is very much relative. 30 seconds can be over in an eye blink if you've got five things that have to happen in that 30 seconds in a certain order, and if you screw up thing number two, three, four, and five are suddenly going off the rails. 30 seconds is not a lot of time. And 30 seconds is an eternity if you have dead air. If there's nothing going over the radio, 30 seconds, it lasts forever. And so when you find yourself in that situation and something's gone wrong, something's broken, something's not happening the way it's supposed to, and you have this dead air, you have to act right away. You have to get something on the air. It may not be the thing that's supposed to be on the air, but you have to get something on the air. You can't wait around and diagnose it. You have to get something on, then look into what the problem was. So that notion of just having to act right away, I get that, right? That's that humanness that we can sort of latch onto when it comes to Peter. So Peter is earnest, and Peter is decisive, and Peter is flawed. He's got shortcomings. And I think this is perhaps where his humanity is most evident. In chapter 16, the previous chapter again, where Peter has just said that Jesus is the Messiah out loud for the first time, Jesus also talks about his death. He predicts his death for the first time. And Peter, being a man of action, jumps in and says, no, I'm not going to allow this to happen. And Jesus' response to the man who had just called him Messiah is, get behind me, Satan. Really? But Peter, instead of trying to understand the nature of the mission, is just going to act out of that. And it's acting out of that love, but it's a flawed action. It's a shortcoming. I mentioned the incident in Gethsemane, right? 
Peter's been spending three years with Jesus preaching about peace, preaching about love, preaching about loving your enemies. And yet the very second Jesus is threatened, and only threatened with you know, arrest, it wasn't like he was going to be killed right then, there and then, but that threat was enough, what does Peter do? He goes right for the violence, right for the sword. That's a flaw. <laughs> That's a flaw. Bit of a flaw. And we see Peter as a, at his most flawed, of course, as Jesus is on trial for his life, and Peter is denying that he even knows Jesus. This man who he loves deeply, he has demonstrated again and again that he loves deeply. He has leapt in to try and defend this person and now he denies even knowing them. It's really easy to judge Peter for that. But I submit, if you put yourself in that position, everything you thought you knew, the person that you were going to follow that was going to set the world straight and all, everything you thought was going to happen now just takes a 90 degree turn to the right and you don't know which way is up or which way is sideways at this point. His life is threatened. Your life is threatened. How many of us would have the integrity to stand up and say, yes, I know him and I want to defend him in that moment, in that place? I don't, I don't know. I don't know. But it's flawed. It's human. It's very much human. And that's why we can connect with Peter. So why is that important when it comes to this transfiguration story? I submit that it's important when it comes to the story of the transfiguration because it allows us to enter into the story through Peter. Preachers often struggle with describing the transfiguration because we don't have any context for it, right? What does it mean that Jesus' face was shining and that his clothes were brilliant white? We can imagine that, but this is something beyond anything we have connotation for, anything we have context for. But when we recognize ourselves in Peter, we can sort of understand his joyous, if overly exuberant, reaction to it. We can start to understand how awe-inducing that must have been to stand there in that moment just by his reaction. Because we can understand a reaction, right, even if we don't understand the thing that he's reacting to. So it gives us insight to this unique event. It's important because it, it, uh, by entering into the story through Peter, it roots us in historical reliability. That's why we picked that second Peter passage to be part of it today. Because in that passage... Peter's talking about, hey, we were there. We saw it, right? This isn't a cleverly devised myth that we're talking about. This is a real event. We were there and we saw it. I saw it. There was two other guys there that saw it. You can go ask them. They will tell you the same thing. They will tell you what that voice said. This is my son, the beloved with whom I'm well pleased. It grounds this mystical event that's difficult to get our heads around. It grounds it in a certain sense of reality because we can connect with Peter as he's saying, hey, I was there and I saw that. But perhaps most importantly, it's through Peter that we receive one of the most critical yet often most overlooked commands in all of the Bible. If you've got your liturgy with you, pull it out for a second because I want to show you something. Look at verse 5. You're looking at verse 5. I'm going to read to you Matthew chapter 3, verse 17, which says, And a voice from heaven said, This is my son, the beloved, with whom I'm well pleased. Matthew 3, 17 is the baptism scene. So we have the baptism scene, and we have the transfiguration scene, and we have the exact same verbiage, except those last three words in verse 5 there, right? Listen to him. And the fact that those words are added adds importance to them. 
This is the command I'm talking about. Listen to him. God actually interrupts Peter in the middle of Peter babbling about making these tents to say, no, 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 stop. Listen to him. It's important because listening is a skill, right? There's a difference between hearing and listening. Any parent in the room is going to nod right now, going, yes, I understand. My kids hear me, but they don't often listen. Sorry, Mom and Dad. There's a literary theorist by the name of Roland Barthes that says he distinguishes between hearing and listening by saying this. Hearing is a physiological phenomenon. Listening is a psychological act. Hearing is something that happens beyond our control, right? Listening is something we actively do. Hearing is passive. Listening is active. Hearing, we're not necessarily processing. Listening is us being intentional about it. Peter has heard Jesus, but has he actually listened to him? Right? Jesus said he had to die, but instead of listening, Peter hears a threat and says, no, I'm not going to let this happen. He's not listening. Jesus preaches peace and nonviolence, but instead of listening, Peter goes right to the, the violence, right to the threat of the sword when he sees that threat to Jesus. He was hearing, but he wasn't listening. Here at the Transfiguration, again, instead of listening, Peter wants to leap to action and start building things. And God says, no, stop. Listen to him. Now, none of this, none of this makes Peter a bad person, and it doesn't even make him a bad apostle. It makes him human. It makes him a human being in a creation that's broken. And that's why we can relate to him. That's why we can connect with him. But if we can connect with him, and we have to ask ourselves, are we listening? Are we listening to Jesus? Are we listening to Jesus when he says that the work of his followers should be to care for the poor, the sick, and the orphan? Or do we complain and judge those who are on government assistance? Are we listening? Are we listening to Jesus when he tells us to be a light unto the world or do we fear conversations about our faith because we fear being associated with other people who would use that faith as a bludgeoning tool? Are we listening? Are we listening to Jesus when he tells us to seek, to seek peace and to love our enemies? Or do we excuse our righteous anger because it's directed at the correct causes? Are we listening? Are we listening to Jesus when he tells us to give without seeking reward or do we seek credit and pats on the back for doing good work, for our acts of generosity? Are we listening? Are we listening when Jesus tells to forgive others as we have been forgiven or do we hang on to our bitterness in that classic Minnesota passive-aggressive way until that other person realizes the errors of their ways? Are we listening? Are we listening to Jesus when he tells us not to worry about tomorrow because today we'll have troubles of its own? Or do we allow ourselves to be, to be consumed with fear and anxiety over things that we have no control over? Are we listening? Are we listening to Jesus when he tells us not to judge others? Or are we all too happy to point out the specks in their eyes while ignoring the logs in our own lives? Are we listening? Are we listening to Jesus when he tells us to do unto others as we'd have them do unto us? Or 
Are we being proactive and doing unto others before they can do unto us? Are we listening? Are we listening to Jesus? That list that I just ran down is only a portion of the Sermon on the Mount. Just a portion of it. Imagine how much more is there in the Sermon on the Mount. Imagine how much more there are in the rest of the Gospels. Imagine how much more there are outside of the Gospels. John says that if he wrote down everything that Jesus said or did, the world could not contain the number of books that would be written. There is a ton there to listen to, but I suspect most of us, mea culpa, aren't always listening, aren't being intentional about listening to Jesus. We could be spending time in the Gospels. We could be allowing that to, to impact us, to form us. We could be sharing what's moving our hearts in the Gospel literature with other people. Are we? So as we turn into Lent, the season of Lent together, I want to ask you, I want to suggest, I want to challenge you. Listen to him. That's the command from God. It isn't me. I'm just passing it along. Listen to him. As you go through Lent, try not to just hear the same stories that you've heard over and over and over and over again throughout your lives, but stop and listen to what Jesus is saying. Really listen to it. You may not have noticed in your liturgy each week, at, towards the back there, are next week's lectionary readings. I'm not even going to ask you to read all four. But take a look at the gospel passage each week. Read it to yourself. Read it again. Read it with someone. Discuss it with someone. Ask yourself, what is Jesus saying? What is it that he wants me to hear? Take the time to listen and pray to the Spirit. Pray that the Spirit helps that message sink into your very bones. Being flawed may be part of the human condition in creation's current brokenness. That's just the reality of the situation that we're in. Tommy Givens is a professor of New Testament at Fuller Seminary out in California, and he actually paraphrases what you see at the end of that Second Peter passage. And he says, The faith that leads to virtue and finally the practice of loving one another does not arise from the impulses of human beings, but is the remembrance of eye-opening prophetic words. What gets us to virtue, what gets us to loving one another the way that God has called us to love one another, isn't something we generate on our own. We get there by listening to him, by listening to Jesus. Because if we focus on that, if we really try to listen to what Jesus has to say and let that get on the inside and do the work it's designed to do, we can transcend our brokenness. We can live into the fullness of being the divine image bearers that we were designed to be, and all we have to do, Genesis, is listen to him. Amen. Endings are a place where life is Thank you for listening to the Genesis West podcast. If, if you, you find, find yourself, yourself nearby, nearby on Sunday, we'd love for you to join us for worship. We meet at Elam Church Center in Robbinsdale, Minnesota. If you, if have, you have any questions or would like to connect with us, please visit us at www.genesiscove.org.